Hi, Idril listeners. I'm Dan Trevanian, Program Director and Media Producer for the Institute of Migrant Rights. This is the Idril Podcast, bringing you interviews with the world's leading scholars, addressing current debates and sharing global perspectives. You can read us at the Indonesian Journal for International and Comparative Law. This episode, we're joined by Professor Andre Marmol. Andre is Professor of Philosophy and Law at Cornell Law School and a graduate of Tel Aviv University in Israel and Oxford University. He's a renowned expert in the philosophy of law. Do you know what makes a valid law? Does it have to be just or right? Who determines the law? What if the law gives your inheritance to your murderer? Andre joins interviewer Chris Kaysen to tackle that question and more. Stay tuned until the end to hear the answer. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, uh, my name is Andre Marmor. Uh, I'm a professor of philosophy and law at Cornell. Uh, I was at other places previously. I taught for quite a few years at the University of Southern California, and before that, the University of Tel Aviv in Israel. Uh, I have been uh, working on philosophy of law for a long time with various outreaches branching out to similar areas. I've worked quite a bit on philosophy of language and the law in the I've worked on the nature of social conventions. Uh, And more recently, I'm working on some metaphysical issues about the social aspects of our world uh, within an area that's called social ontology. Uh, And, uh, you know, philosophy of law has always been my main focus, trying to understand what the law is and how it is related to morality and other things. Uh, is what interests me and what I've been writing on quite a bit. Well, it's obviously a very interesting and, I guess, timeless subject. Um, So what sort of led you to tackle this question of what is the nature of law? So, you know, it is in the nature of questions in philosophy that they are past dependent. They depend on history and intellectual history. Uh, questions come up from previous answers. So the history of this is fairly simple. Uh, The general interest in the nature of law really goes back thousands of years. Uh, I wouldn't say that there is a philosophy of law in ancient Greek philosophy, but there is certainly interest in the nature of law. And uh, that interest... uh, uh, was caught up uh, later in uh, especially late medieval philosophy and thereafter. Uh, People realized that law is a very important, very central social institution, uh, that it has obvious connections to ethics, morality, justice, uh, and they wanted to understand those connections. Uh, Now, very different philosophical traditions engaged with this question. Uh, what happened in the 20th century, middle of the 20th century, that the analytical tradition in uh, philosophy uh, managed to 
kind of reformulate these questions in ways which are in line with the kind of fairly recent analytical uh, tradition. And the main characters uh, in doing that, uh, the main character, the main philosopher who transformed the interest in the nature of law into something that analytical philosophers can engage with was H.L.A. Hart. And Hart is the founder on everybody's account. Hart is the founder of analytical jurisprudence, of analytical philosophers engaging with the question of what law is. Now, if you want, in a minute, I'll tell you what I think analytical philosophy is, how it differs from traditional philosophical disciplines. But for now, let's leave it. And uh, my interest in Kelsen is partly because uh, H.L.A. Hart was heavily influenced by Kelsen. So the two main figures, the towering figures in the middle of the 20th century in uh, this domain, in this interest about the nature of law, are Kelsen and Hart. and they influence this newly emergent discipline in different ways. Uh, so the short answer to your question is, the interest in what law is and how it's related to justice and morality is as long as the history of philosophy. It got transformed into uh, more focused and analytically precise questions somewhere in the middle of the 20th century. And it kind of created a whole new discipline of that we call analytical jurisprudence that many of us are engaged in. Okay, and I guess at this point I would ask you what, uh, what is the difference between analytical jurisprudence and the, sort of the tradition? And it, it's okay to... to... Yeah, yeah. I, I, I understand the challenge. Uh, it's difficult to meet the challenge without offending my friends across the Atlantic, uh, actually across the channel uh, uh, in continental Europe. Because, uh, strangely enough, there is a kind of divide between philosophy in the analytical tradition that predominates the Anglo-American world and what we call continental philosophy, which is uh, not really analytical. Uh, So what is the difference? Well, again, it's kind of path-dependent. What changed uh, in philosophy most significantly around the turn of the century around 1900 and first decades of the 20th century, very first, is the emergence of mathematical logic and the emergence of philosophy of language as a discipline. So people realize that uh, the foundations of mathematics uh, have to be logical, but then they realize that they don't have the logic to deal with it, so it needed to be developed. And what emerged was a very sophisticated, very mathematical structure of uh, fundamental principles of inference and logic. And that gave rise to, in ways that are not easy to explain, so I'll skip that, but it really connected into a very focused interest in the nature of language, of meaning, semantics, how we communicate with each other, and the connection between language and truth, between our sentences and our and the, and the truth of those sentences. So all this really transformed philosophy in the Anglo-American world. Uh, and not all of it is left. I mean, it's certainly not the case that all analytical philosophers have a particular interest in language and logic. I mean, we do regard logic as foundational, but it's not that we're necessarily interested in it as a topic of inquiry. 
But what remained is a quest for precision, great respect for structured arguments, right? If you want to claim something in philosophy, you have to show how it derives from clear premises, and the premises have to be well-formulated and plausible. So it has become more a matter of style than anything else. Analytical philosophers might seem to the continental philosophers are extremely narrow-minded and not, not very imaginative because they focus on little issues, trying to be very precise about it, not on grand schemes or the meaning of life or, you know, where is society going uh, and things like that. So we work with that style, which has its advantages. The advantage is accuracy and respect for careful argument. The disadvantage is we don't make big claims about the nature of the universe or, you know, uh, uh, and a tradition in legal philosophy that is analytical is a tradition that focuses on a certain number of uh, issues and tries to give us as precise answers to those. What, so my question was, uh, what issues specifically relate to legal analytical philosophy? What, what, what distinguishes legal analytical philosophy from general analytical So if I heard your question correctly, the question is, what, what, what are the main issues that analytical legal philosophy deals with, right? Correct, yes. So I think that there are two or three main questions, uh, uh, maybe three or four, actually. So the first question uh, perhaps the most foundational question, is the question of what is the essential nature of law, okay? What kind of phenomena, what kind of cultural, social, political institution the law as such is, okay? Now, obviously, we know a lot about particular legal systems, Indonesian law, British law, French law, Canadian law. There are laws everywhere. There's international law. And each legal system has its own uh, rules and conventions and, and uh, laws determining a whole bunch of things, right? And they may differ. You know, Canadian law is not like German law. But the assumption is that they are all instances of legal system, of law in general. So we want to understand what is this phenomenon of law, okay? What, what makes things legal? When Canadians say that it is the law in Canada that so-and-so, on what grounds do they make those claims? What makes it the case that it is law in Canada? And what makes it the case that something is law in Indonesia or wherever? So this is the fundamental question about the nature of law. What makes things legal? Okay? What has to be true for something to count as uh, legally valid or legal? Okay? can call this the questions about the grounds of legality, okay? And we assume that we can come up with certain answers that applies to law wherever there is law, okay? That applies universally as a Now, so that's the first fundamental question. Okay. The second question comes up from or derives from the observation, the undisputable observation, that law has a lot to do with giving us reasons for action. Uh, the law tells us what to do. The law tells us what not to do, how to go about doing certain things. So there is a very close connection between 
laws and reasons for action, reasons to do certain. And the question is, what is this? Okay, how does law give us reasons for action? And in particular, whether it gives us moral reasons for action, and what is the connection between uh, the law saying that you ought to do something and morality telling you to do that thing or not to do. So this is the question we call about law's normativity. In what sense laws are normative? In what sense do they give us reasons for action? And is that necessarily tied to moral reasons or not? Okay. So this is the second big question. Uh, And uh, then a third question that came up, I think, more recently, uh, and it's a little bit more difficult to explain, but it's not that foundational, is the question of how to construct legal content. What determines the content of laws? For example, uh, you have a statute, piece of legislation. It has some content. It tells you what to do or what not to do or how to do something. How is that content related to the fact that there is a certain expression in the form of legislation? Is it fully determined by language, by the way in which the law was expressed or not? Or is there more that goes into the content of laws than their uh, uh, expression or communication? Finally, and this has become a big issue from the 1990s, 80s onwards, there is a methodological question about the nature of all this. What are we doing here when we ask what is the nature of law, what's law's normativity, what kind of philosophy are we engaged in? And... Here, there is a rough divide between those who think, like H.L.A. Hart, for example, that we are not engaged in moral philosophy. We're not doing moral political philosophy. We are uh, trying to describe certain aspects of the world. In other words, or in different words, uh, we're doing metaphysics. We're, We're trying to understand the nature of reality, of a certain kind of social reality. Uh, on the other side, there are those who say, no, no, we are doing moral philosophy. We're actually engaged in uh, theorizing about the law from a perspective of moral political interest we have in the law and that our moral political views uh, affect and influence our answers to these what seem to be descriptive how to describe the law. So there is this methodological debate at the background and that's part of what's going on in this field. Okay. You've emphasized the language that we use to express um, this philosophy of the nature of law. Uh, use a number of terms like natural law, morality, principles versus legal principles. Um, how important is the, that language in how we discuss this? Well, the language is just a shortcut. It's just reference to particular theories and particular views. Okay. So take the example of natural law. Okay. Natural law is uh, actually a family of views on the relation between law and morality. And it has a history, an intellectual history. It dates back probably to the late Middle Ages, to the 14th century. Uh, the so-called Thomist tradition in Christian Europe, uh, and later developed in the 16th, 17th centuries by a whole bunch of important jurists. Uh, So 
it's it, 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 it's essentially a theory, uh, a theory that has certain uh, fundamental principles, certain fundamental ideas, and they are debated and uh, uh, you know form one of the focal points of the debate. So this is one way in which we use these terms, just as a shortcut for a particular view or a family of view. Uh, somewhat more specifically, the idea of legal principles was introduced by a particular legal philosopher, very, very influential legal philosopher of the 20th century, Ronald Borkin. Uh, and uh, in his case, it just a stipulation for a particular idea that he defended in a series of arguments. So when we talk about legal principles, it's not just any kind of principle that happens to be legal. We talk about the specific theoretical idea uh, and so on and so forth. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that all these terms we use refer to particular theories or theoretical ideas. Some of them are more open-ended, like morality and justice. Right, and I guess there's uh, how these, how we explain the differences um, not just semantics, it definitely seems like there's importance to the language. But, uh, so how would you characterize um, the different theories? Um, different theories about, of course, there's the family of natural laws. Um, how does that relate to legal positivism? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it's an old chestnut. Uh, and uh, not sure that, uh, the essence of that debate is still an issue in contemporary uh, jurisprudence, in contemporary philosophy of law, uh, although some version of it is. So the history here uh, is fairly simple. Uh, natural law tradition, uh, which is tied to uh, late medieval Christian theology in some obscure ways which shouldn't detain us, but the tradition uh, maintains that law and morality are essentially connected. In what way? Well, roughly in the following way, that law necessarily aims at the common good. The essence of law is to promote, in some ways, the common good. And therefore, if law fails to do that, if law fails to be good in some fundamental way, it's not really law. It just fails to be law. Okay. Now, the idea that we can try to make law and fail is certainly correct. You know, I can try to make new laws for New York City, but I'm unlikely to succeed because I don't have the authority to do that. Uh, but here, the failure is more fundamental, right? It's not that just the wrong people try to make law or they try to make law in the wrong way. It's the idea that something is not law if it fails morally in some profound way, okay? And people usually refer to the famous dictum of Thomas, uh, uh, sorry, of uh, uh, Aquinas, uh, saying that unjust law is not law, okay? Lex in justa, non est lex. Uh, so it shouldn't be understood all too simplistically, but it is the idea that if law fails certain minimal threshold of justice, is just not law. Now, 19th century jurists, uh, in particular, uh, a very famous 19th century moral, political, legal philosopher, Jeremy Bentham, uh, just made fun of this idea. 
And he said, look, this is just fantasy. Of course, things can be legal, even if they are uh, absolutely abhorrent, morally speaking. We just know that. We just see all around us laws and legal systems that are morally iniquitous, that are morally unjust. So the idea that you fail to make law or something fails to be law because it is fundamentally unjust uh, flies in the face of reality. It just cannot be true. And I think that this is so obvious to contemporary jurists uh, that natural law, the tradition of natural law, which is still with us, had to be reformulated, kind of almost reinvented to make some sense of it. Okay? And there are various very subtle, very sophisticated versions of it which give up this idea that unjust law is not law. Okay? We all understand that that just cannot be true. There are too many laws that are obviously unjust. So there is that old debate that pretty much faded away in the 20th century. What replaced it is a much more interesting and much more initially plausible version of, I wouldn't call it natural law, but something similar to it. We call it anti-positivism, which is the idea that moral reasons, moral arguments, moral principles, moral deliberation do have an effect on what we count as law. Okay, That's essentially the idea of what Dworkin initially introduced as legal principles. So the idea was that in addition to all these obvious ways in which laws are made, you know, enactment by a parliament or a decree by an executive branch of government, uh, there is much more to law than that. And that ways in which particularly judges reason to what the law is are sometimes moral ways. They use moral arguments, arguments based on moral principles or justice and fairness uh, in order to reach conclusions about what the law is. So in that respect, law and morality are very closely connected and intertwined. The tradition that starts with Bentham that I mentioned earlier, mid-19th century, uh, and was articulated uh, much more carefully by H.L.A. Hart in the 20th century, the positivist tradition maintains that what law is doesn't depend on moral consideration. The way in which moral considerations come into the law when exercised by judges, for example, is just a way of changing the law, modifying it. Something is law, not because it's just, but because the judges say that it's just. It's the judge's role and legal power to modify the law. But what the law is depends on what people say that it is. It's fundamentally a matter of social facts, facts about rules and conventions and actions and uh, proclaimments of people. So these are the two main traditions contemporarily debated. Uh, The legal positivist tradition that says law is just a matter of various types of social facts, institutional facts and what people do and say, and the anti-positivist tradition that says, no, law is also a matter of moral reasoning, because moral reasoning sometimes determines what the law is. One of the things I noted was the reference to legal validity. Um, Yes. Whether a law is, is there a distinction between something that is a law and something that is a valid law? 
No, legal validity is just a kind of technical term uh, for what we would just say legality, right? Something is law, uh, is legally valid, okay? And if it's not legally valid, it's not law. That's all we mean, okay? So whatever counts as legal is legally valid. And the question is, what grounds that? What makes it the case that something is legally valid, okay? Uh, is, if I say, don't park here, uh, I may be right. There may be good reasons not to park here, but I, I don't have the power to make that the law. It's not legally valid. Uh, if the city council, in the appropriate procedures, following the appropriate procedure, says no park here, that is likely to be valid law. That's legal. That's all we need. Well, and I guess where does that um, validity come from? Is it, what, I guess what I'm asking is, what makes a law normative? What, what exactly is the basis of that? Is it authority? Is it um, sanction? Uh, well, that's where the, one of the main debates in uh, jurisprudence uh, is all about. Uh, but let me start about what it's not. So one thing that pretty much uh, all of us in this field agree, that sanction uh, is not what makes things legal. Okay? Uh, there are laws which are not necessarily uh, tied to any particular sanction for violating. In fact, you know, a great, great part of what law does for us, its functions in society have not much to do with functions and force and coercion. So that, that is something that is pretty much agreed by everyone, I think. Uh, the debate is precisely about the question of what makes things legal, about the, 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 the grounds of legal validity, okay? What makes it the case that something is legally valid or not? So according to the legal positivist tradition, we should be able to provide an answer to that question, uh, which has nothing to do with what is morally right or wrong. That's the idea, okay? You should be able to show, look, there are certain social rules, there are certain social conventions that determine who gets to make law in, in, our, in here. You know, who, who makes law here, uh, here in our country, in our city, uh, or whatever. And those social rules, in a sense, grant authority to particular people or institutions they create uh, to make law. And whatever they make according to that authority whatever they proclaim uh, according to that authority is legally valid, and that's the end of it. According to anti-positivist views, uh, that's not the end of it. Uh, and that there are ways in which moral considerations and considerations about justice and fairness and things like that also determine validity of laws, okay? That's what the debate is about. So is, I guess, Sort of sum up. What is the current state? Is there um, is there moving towards a consensus, or is there is it evolving? Um, I guess what is the current state of the philosophical debate? Well, philosophy does not generate consensus, and it's not about consensus. Of course, philosophy generates controversy. Philosophy generates argument. So uh, I think that these issues are still debated. Right. And, uh, you know, I belong to the roughly legal positivist tradition. 
my arguments uh, aim to show that moral considerations don't figure into the question of what grounds legal validity, that legal validity is basically a matter of social and institutional facts. Uh, and what the law is and what the law ought to be are totally separate questions. And then, you know, there are people who argue against that. And this argument continues. I'm not saying it's the only argument. It would be rather boring if that was the only thing we argued about. But it's something that we still argue about uh, in various ways. So the current state is the, the debate continues. Now, to be honest, uh, th there is some trend among, among some of my colleagues to say, enough. Okay? We debated this for over 100 years. Maybe we should move on. And so there is merit in that too. I mean, there are good reasons to move on and think about other issues. And that has been done as well. Can you, uh, just for a little point of clarification, can you um, explain a little bit more about the difference between what the law is, and what the law ought to be? So there's the, the is versus the ought, I think is how you distinguish them. In sure. I'll, I'll give you an example that has become a kind of a, a classic that was given by Dworkin, Ronald Dworkin, I mentioned earlier, who argued that to try to show how moral considerations figure into what the law is. So there was this famous case in New York, I think, New York Supreme Court, at the uh, turn of the century, around 1900, I don't remember the exact date where the laws of inheritance were such that they were purely procedural, technical, uh, in the case of the absence of a will. So if a person died without a will, the, the laws determine who gets to inherit. The case arose from the fact that a guy murdered his grandfather and was next in line to inherit him. And, and he was sitting in jail for murder. But he claimed his inheritance because the laws of inheritance entitled him inherit the estate of the murdered grandfather. So the Supreme Court said, uh, technically, he's right, but surely that cannot be the law. Okay? It cannot be the case that the law entitles a person to profit from his own wrong, in this case, serious wrong, murder. And the law, uh, sorry, the Supreme Court argued on the basis of principles of justice essentially, that what the law really is, is different. The law does not allow people to inherit from their own uh, murder, based on their own murder. Uh, so Dworkin uses these kinds of examples to show that considerations about what the law ought to be, because it's pretty clear here what the law ought to be. I mean, it's outrageous to allow someone to inherit the estate of uh, a person he murdered. So surely we know what the law should be what it ought to be. And here's an example of how it determines what it is. The court actually ruled that the law is not only the technical procedures of inheritance, it's also the substantive idea that you cannot profit from your own wrong. And legal positivists in response say, no, what the Supreme Court did here is just change the law. It realized that it's a bad law, uh, we cannot let it stand, and we need to change it. And the law was changed by the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has the legal power to do that. They do that all the time. They modify laws, they change them, they invent new laws. Uh, 
So that's what the debate is about. Who describes this situation better? The anti-positivists who claim, look, this just shows us how considerations about what the law ought to be determine what it is. And the positivists say, no, it shows us nothing of the sort. Uh, it's just one of those cases where the courts legislate, they make new law. That's Professor Andre Marmo explaining what is the law, who determines it, and what does it mean. The Idril podcast is an initiative of the Institute of Migrant Rights, with production by Dan Trevanian and Woody Anto. Special thanks to Saro Afin, Chris Kaysen, and Pran Iskander. You can learn more at idril.org. That's ijil.org. I'm Dan Trevanian. Tune in to the next episode for another global perspective.